Deuteronomy chapter 28. The setting for this book is right at the end of the 40 years of wandering and the 40 years in the wilderness. And Israel now at this point is camped. Israel is camped on the east side of the Jordan River. If you remember the map in your mind of what Israel looks like, you have the Mediterranean to the west, you have the Jordan to the east. And they're on the east side, just on the other side of Canaan. And now here at this point, they're ready to cross into the promised land, but they have come out of four decades of mess. It has been ugly what has happened. It has been ugly how they have been in sin and rebellion, and there's been wandering and death, millions of people dying in the wilderness. There's been a complete changing over of a generation. It's taken them a long time to turn from their self-centeredness and to turn from their self-sufficiency and their resistance against the Lord. And there's even, at this point, as they're standing on the edge of Canaan, there's still some fear and some skepticism. Is this what we're supposed to do? And is God really going to be faithful? And boy, I've heard those Canaanites are brutal. And remember what the spy said. All this junk that's in their head, where they're wondering whether this is really going to work. So Deuteronomy is a summation. It's a recap of all that's happened and Moses takes all these chapters to reteach them about the law that God's established and to talk about the fact that they need to obey it reinforcing look Israel get it together now Moses is about to die he doesn't know that yet but he's he just needs to to get things settled with them and say look here's what God's done let's let's review since Many of you, most of you, all of you are new to this. Let's recap what's happened. So he takes the whole book to teach them about the law and to say, Israel, you need to follow God. You need to obey the Lord. Israel's tendency was to blame, to always put it on somebody else, to say that there was a reason for their disobedience, that there was a reason why they not trusted God. And when there was no one to blame, then they accused the Lord and said, Lord, you've been unfair. Even to the point many times throughout the 40 years of saying, you brought us out in the wilderness to punish us. You brought us in the wilderness to to oppose us. And you let all this happen. And God, why haven't you helped? And, And it's just, it had to be so maddening to the Lord to keep hearing that. So Moses is very direct in Deuteronomy. And he gets very, very personal. He says, we're not going to do this anymore. In fact, I want to constantly remind you of what we have done in sinning against God and how we have been unwilling to follow the Lord and that that's caused all of this. But he also, in the middle of that teaching to them, also reminds them again and again, the Lord has been faithful and the Lord has been merciful and the Lord has been patient and kind and slow to anger and rich in compassion. You know, this is one of the most powerful and effective ways that the Word of God teaches us. It stokes our memory. It reminds us of what God has done and how God has been faithful. And it alters our perspective so we get away from the bias that we have and the inaccuracies in our thinking of how it went a certain way. And God says, ah, let me me change your thinking because your thinking's skewed. Here's how I work. Here's who I am. Here's when I am faithful. And I want to remind you again and again 
of what I have done. It's never a bad thing to be reminded about the faithfulness of the Lord, is it? It's, it's never a bad thing to say, oh, Lord, I remember this is what you did. I remember how you delivered me from that. I remember how you healed me from that. I remember how you changed that relationship when it was so messed up. I remember how you worked in my life and how you were sufficient and how you were faithful. Now, just as it's not a bad thing to be reminded of the faithfulness of God, it's also never a bad thing to be reminded how sin distorts our thinking and how we are messed up sometimes in the way that we have our perspective and our, our attitude. Now, chapter 28 of Deuteronomy is, is that kind of centerpiece of the book that does all this in one chapter. The first part of the chapter in verses 1 to 14, Moses talks about the correlation between obedience and the Lord's blessing. And then in the second part, and there are three times as many verses in the second part as in the first part, in the second part, he talks about the connection between disobedience and the Lord's curse. And he actually uses that word seven times. That when we obey, God blesses, and when we disobey, God curses. Now, I'd like to focus this morning on the positive of that. The willingness of the Lord to bless us, and the extent to which he blesses us when he does. Now, as we read this, we need to remember that this is specifically spoken to Israel. So some of the statements and promises that are made here have no application to us in 2011. We need to make sure as we study the Old Testament, we teach and share the Old Testament, that it is specifically applicable over the years because some things are specifically spoken to Israel. This is one of those cases where there are specific promises to Israel. But there are also statements in here that are general, uh, general statements of knowledge. They're things that we know about the Lord and things that we're told about walking with the Lord. So they're just as true now as they were 5,000 years ago. Let's look at the text and see what the Lord tells Moses here. Start in verse 1 of chapter 28. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed will you be in the city, and blessed will you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed will be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed will you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you, verse 9, as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will be afraid of you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and the offspring of your beast, the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. 
And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you will only be above, and you will not be underneath, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully. And do not turn aside from any of the works, words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. Now, there's a spiritual principle here that is very important for us to understand. And it's important so that our heart and mind are consistently in the right place. The principle is that the Lord never blesses randomly or frivolously. The Lord never just throws out blessings, just, oh, here, and toss this this way, and throw that out that way, and see if that sticks. The Lord never blesses randomly, and he never is frivolous or flippant with his blessing. He always has a distinct purpose. And he usually blesses because he is pleased with someone's faith and someone's faithfulness. God is looking this morning to bless his people. God is looking this morning to favor them and to honor them and to help them and to secure them and to be sufficient for them. But he is also looking for us to do something in response. Now that is an essential truth for us to know because it does two things. One is that it influences us not to take the Lord for granted. And the second thing is that it persuades us not to have an expectation that the Lord is going to do something that he's not willing to do. I found over the years, especially in counseling, that so much of the frustration that people have in walking by faith is motivated by a flawed understanding of who God is and what God does. People's perspective is altered because they think God is this magic genie who should just do for them whatever they want, whenever they want it, and they misquote scripture and say, well, it says if I ask for anything, that I get anything, and why isn't God working, and why doesn't God answer prayer, and why doesn't God do all these things? And I'm trying to walk by faith, but I'm waiting for God to show me that he's worth it. Essentially, people are saying, I don't understand why God doesn't just do everything for me. How many know God's already done everything for us? We don't need any more at this point. And yet our materialistic and selfish minds, which still are there, right? They say more, 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 more. And we become a little bit spoiled. Even as people who have been saved a long time who should know better, some of us, we, we still say, come on, God, do for me, do for me, do for me. What we see here in the text, how he tells Israel, is that there are three prerequisites to his blessing. There are three conditions that he puts out where he says, I'm more than willing to bless you. And sometimes I'll bless you even when you're not expecting it. But I do expect certain things. Look at them in the text in verse 1. He says, we must diligently obey the Lord. The meaning is very deep there. We'll look at it in just a minute. Then he says in verse 9, we must keep his commandments and walk in his ways. And then he says in verse 14, we must not follow after other gods to serve them. Now let's take each one just for about two minutes each. The first one 
is that he says, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. Now, the word obey there in the English text in the NASB doesn't quite, because the English language is a little inadequate, it doesn't quite capture the full essence of that word. The word is the Hebrew word shama, which means nothing to any of us until we realize that its meaning is very multifaceted. Shama means to hear, to listen, and to obey. In other words, obedience is not just intellectual grasping and acceptance. It's not just ritualistic compliance. It's a matter of our heart. It's a matter of our willingness to yield to the Lord. Now, hearing's the easy part. Taking in God's word, exposing our minds to his truth, knowing that it's, that it's right and it's true. But many people hear God's word and they never respond to it. Some people for years, they'll sit in church and they'll listen to the word of God and it just goes in one ear and out the other if it ever makes it into their brain. It just, it just sits there. Nothing happens. Which is why he says you must not only hear, but you must listen. See, you can hear something and not listen. You know that if you have a child, right? You keep saying it over and over. Yes, daddy. Okay, daddy. That's good, daddy. All right, daddy. I'll do that, daddy. And then after you've said it, you know, 14,000 times, what happens? What did you say? You told me something? That's hearing without listening. Shama means to hear and to listen. Listening is being receptive to the word of God and accepting it as what we need. And as we do that, it opens us up to the conviction of the Holy Spirit so he can change us. Without listening, there's a dullness to obedience. It, 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 it seems almost disingenuous. Obedience without submission of the heart is hypocrisy. Obedience without stirring is ritual, so we have to be receptive to the Word of God so it stirs us to holiness and it stirs us to trust in the Lord because faith comes by what? Tell me. Hearing and hearing by the what? Tell me. The Word of God. You can hear the Word, but it has to get in there. And once we hear and our minds are yielded to the truth and once our hearts are stirred, guess what happens? Obedience becomes the only response. It's not just, well, God gave me a bunch of laws and Ten Commandments and I got to do that. Okay, here we go. That's all it takes. Some, some people live so dully like that that it's just this list of rules. But God says, get it into your heart. Get it. The faith comes by hearing the word and by engulfing it and embracing it and allowing it to change you so the Holy Spirit can work. And once that happens, obedience isn't even a question. It's the only logical response. So obedience is, is preconditioned by the first two. We have to hear and we have to listen. Now that leads to the second qualification of verse 9 that the Lord establishes. He says we're to keep his commandments and walk in his ways. Once our minds are convinced about the Lord and our hearts are submitted to him, our calling then is not just to do his commandments, but to live consistently and openly for him to not deviate from what he teaches and expects. But the Lord's not just going to stand back and wait for us to come through because he knows we have a propensity to sin. 
He knows that we're still inclined and the enemy constantly pushes us and says, fall back, fall back, fall back. So Romans says, here's what the Lord does. He changes our nature and he renews our minds and he fills us with his spirit and he empowers us to walk in holiness. Look at what verse 9 says. It says that he establishes us as a holy people unto himself. Now he was speaking to Israel, but that applies to us. Because we're set apart. We're sanctified. We bear his name, the name of Jesus. If you trust in Jesus this morning, you are a Christian. That word's not used the way it used to be used. It used to be strong. Now we kind of, well, I'm a follower and I'm a such and such. And a, No, let's use the name Christian. Why? Because it's the name of Christ. Well, I follow the Bible and kind of, it's mushy, isn't it? We're Christians. We bear the name of Christ. We're a holy people set apart to him. And we're promised the eternal blessing of life with him. And to be able to do that, God says, I'm going to equip you and empower you, and fill you, and strengthen you, so you can walk. Now, here's what you have to do. Sacrifice your will. Sacrifice your desire. Abandon sin. That's the only option. So you can walk in my ways. Then look at the third evidence of God's blessing. Verse 14. The third condition, excuse me, not the third evidence, the third condition of God's blessing is that we not go after other gods. Now, for the Jews, this was a chronic problem. They were constantly looking at other gods. The gods of the Canaanites and the gods of the Philistines and the gods of the Arameans and the gods of the Assyrians. And they had a special proclivity to Baal. They loved Baal. Just a false, ugly stone idol but they'd set up shrines to him and they'd build special places of worship to Baal and they'd constantly run back to Baal. They worshipped everything but the true God. That's why Moses says to them, look, God's about to bless us richly. He's led us. He's been patient with us. He hasn't forsaken his promise. We're about to go into Canaan and there are going to be a lot of gods over there. So Israel, listen Church, listen, don't follow after other gods to serve them. The verse is very interesting in what it's warning us against. It says, don't go after them. The word literally means to leave. In other words, don't go away from where you should be. Distance always indicates that something is wrong in our relationship with the Lord. If you feel distant from the Lord this morning then you better race back to him. That's why God is always saying, seek me, come near to me, and I'll come near to you. I'm a very present help in time of trouble. You've just got to come close. But here's what sin does. It pushes us farther and farther and farther away. So he says to them, don't go away. Don't get distance from the Lord. Israel, stay close. And then he says, be careful, look at it, that you're not serving them. That has the implication actually of working for them and being subject for them. Once you worship anything or anyone other than the Lord, you're in submission to it. Now, we don't have the problem in this day and age of idols and shrines. 
We're not going to drive home today and see a false god sitting on the side of the road, a Baal that's sitting there that some people are worshiping. But there are a lot of other things in our lives that serve as false gods. There are things that we are preoccupied with and things that we are subservient to that, that, that capture our heart and mind far more than Christ does. Think about your past week. I'm not saying this to draw guilt. I'm saying this as a truth. Think about your past week. How much was dedicated solely to the Lord and how much was dedicated to something else? I guarantee you, because I know my own life, that that was a big imbalance. What captures us? What's our false gods? Material things like money, possessions, and jobs. Relational things like sex and popularity and status. Even children can become a false god. Cultural things like sports and music and entertainment and alcohol. Even the self-absorbed world of personal technology. Personal technology can become this little god that we spend all our time feeding and watching and giving our lives to. And and it becomes more important to us than spending time with the Lord. I know that hurts a little bit to say. It hurts me to say too. But that is a reality, isn't it? So what are we going to do about it? Just ignore it? Keep making it our little God? Or are we going to change something? Because anything that we go after that is not of the Lord, about the Lord, or pleasing to the Lord can easily become a false God. And it allows our hearts to be pulled away from Him. And that's an indication, and here's where it really gets painful. You ready? That's an indication that we don't really love Him. Because we're told, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And listen, it is too common for us to have a superficial love for the Lord, to not give ourselves fully and completely to Him. That doesn't mean 168 hours this week are spent in the Word. That's not a practical reality. What it does mean is that we start to shift our priorities away from those false gods and start to spend time with the Lord. And here's the wonderful and ironic part. God wants to bless us abundantly. Hear that last word. God wants to bless us abundantly. But He will not be mocked and He will not be ignored and He will not take second place to anyone or anything. If you want the proof of that, later today or this week, read verses 15 to 68 and study what He says. Now, for the sake of our study in the next few moments, let's be encouraged by the promise of His blessing. I want you to go back to verse 2 for a minute. What's so striking about this verse in this text is how willing God is to bless us and how widespread that blessing is. I love that phrase in verse 2. He says, the blessing will overtake you. It will engulf you. It will overwhelm you. God will not be stingy He will not be sparse. Somehow, I don't understand it, it's the mercy of God and the love of God. Somehow God delights in blessing us. And it's not just a little bit of blessing. He blesses us to the extent 
that it's far more than we can comprehend. Now, I want you to let your mind just sit on that for a minute. Do we really get how amazing God is? We just sang a number of songs about God's greatness and God's majesty, that he's indescribable, that he's unchanging, that he's faithful, that he's holy, that he's just, that he's good, that he's patient, that he's kind. I mean, you just go on and on with the, with the superlatives about the Lord. Do we really understand how great he is? And do we understand what an incredible expression of his love is his blessing? How can we do anything other than give him praise and thank him and give ourselves fully to him? You know, I, I love to give to my kids. I love to do things for them that make them happy and make them smile and make them just overjoyed where I can just see the excitement on their face and they're so content. I love watching them be satisfied and showing gratitude, not because we demand it, and not because we try to guilt them into it, because they're so overwhelmed with joy that they, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, oh, that was, oh, that was, thank you for today. That was so wonderful. One of the things that amazes me about my oldest son, Jacob, is that he pretty much, and I'm not at all being facetious when I say this, he pretty much remembers where and when he got every single one of his toys. I mean, it's, it's almost scary. He, if, if someone gave something to him, he knows exactly when it was. He knows exactly who it was. If we bought something at a garage sale, he knows which garage sale it was and how much we paid. He even can say to me sometimes, oh, don't you remember, Dad? That was four years ago. I was wearing that green shirt. And, and I'm like, why can't you close the door and not let the flies in? I mean, you know, seriously. But you know what? It means so much to me that he does that. Because every time he does it, it says, this mattered to me. And I've stored it in my heart and my mind to remember later. And when we talk about these things, oh, thank you, Dad, that, that you did that. Now, I tell you that, not to brag on my son, but, but to say, that's what we should be doing with the Lord. We should have a photographic memory. Oh, Lord, I remember in 1987 when I was sitting in that apartment that, that you spoke to me and you showed me yourself and you rescued me in a time that was difficult. And, Lord, I remember when you got me through that crisis with a job and I remember when you got me through that, that health scare and I remember the little things that you've done, Lord, the little, little blessings you've given to me. Remember 1994 and how you blessed me. Oh, Lord, that was so rich and wonderful even though I didn't appreciate it at the time. Do you have that catalog in your head? Can you say, oh, Lord, that was the time when you worked, how you taught me and guided me and blessed me and helped me. His blessing's never inadequate. Hear that this morning. His blessing is never inadequate. It is only abundant. If you want proof of that, look at the first nine verses. Look at how the Lord describes when he's due to his people. Go back to verse 3. He says, you'll be blessed wherever you go. You live in the city, you live in the country, doesn't matter, I'll bless you. You'll be blessed in whatever you do, whatever you own, whatever you produce. Verses 5 and 6, you'll be blessed in what you have. 
and in what you earn. Verse 7, when you have enemies, I'll confuse them and I'll divide them and I'll remove them. Verse 8, I'll give you more than you need and I'll prepare some for later. No part of your life will go untouched. I'll just keep securing you and helping you in multiple ways and at multiple times if you will listen to me. If you don't want to listen, Israel, look, we got 40 years of not listening. Fine, you want to do that? God's not going to be there. But Israel, church, if you will listen to the Lord and you will hearken to him and live in his ways, he will bless you in ways you cannot fathom. Not, you, you, you can't even wrap your mind around it. It's going to be so thorough. Now look down to verse 10. Because this isn't just for us. It's not so we can say, oh, we get, we get, we get, we get. No, that's, that's materialistic thinking. That's self-thinking. Look at the effect of this because it has a dramatic outward impact on others. When we're living in a way that brings God's unmistakable favor, when his presence is in our lives and in our churches, listen now, it will be so obvious that it will influence other people to seek him. Notice in verse 10 what evidence we have that we're walking faithfully in him. All the people of the earth will see that we are called by the name of the Lord. That is not to stoke our pride It is to magnify God's name. But here's the problem. Israel never saw it that way. They still don't to this day. The promise was given to them and they squandered it. They didn't care about it. They rejected it. They rejected the Lord. They rejected Moses. They rejected the prophets. They rejected Jesus. They rejected Paul. They rejected the apostles. So God says, fine, you don't care about it. I'm going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and I'm going to build my church and my church is going to bear my name. And they should be an overwhelming, powerful example of the fact that they are called by the name of the Lord. And then I'm going to remove the church and I'm going to re-engage with you, Israel. And this time, I promise you're going to Think about the implication of verse 10 in our lives. Think about the implication of verse 10 in our church. Do people really see that we are called by the name of the Lord? Not that we go to church. Not that we try to do good things. Not that we're people who talk a good game. But the distinctive nature of the Lord indwells us. That the hand of the Lord rests on us that our lives and our churches are so clearly a living sacrifice to God that we are holy people and a holy example of changed lives to the point, look at the verse, that people are fearful of it. I asked myself as I was finishing last night, how odd right now is the world of the church? In our country, let's just take America. In in our country, how much is the world, how much is our culture overwhelmed by the power of the message of the gospel and the example of holiness that's coming out of our churches? 
We're so busy being conformed to the world and catering to them and appeasing them that we've become fearful of them rather than vice versa. And our influence for Christ, which is not even a sentence, if you go to any church leadership or church growth conference, you will not hear that sentence uttered. Our influence for Christ. You will not hear that. Our influence for Christ is seriously lacking. So the only conclusion we can draw is that we are not seeking him the way that we should and we're not living as the way that we should. But the verse tells us that when the Lord is present, that there will be respect and awe and fear of not aligning with him. That's how Peter and John in Acts 4 were able to stand before the Pharisees and the scribes who had just thrown them in jail for the night and to say, we don't really care what you do. We are going to preach the gospel. We don't care how much you threaten us. We are going to boldly stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happened? It says that they were fearful of them. They were surprised by how strong they were and how they stood firm and they noticed that they had been with Jesus. I love that verse. I keep coming back to it because that's the effect of the gospel and that's the effect of holy living is that people are awed by it. They recognize Jesus' presence. It's how Paul was able to stand to Felix and Festus and Agrippa at the end of the book of Acts and how when he spoke to Agrippa, he spoke boldly and he used logic and rationale to say, Agrippa, you are away from Christ, and Christ can save you. And Agrippa says, you almost persuade me. I'm just this close. The Spirit of God was on them. Listen now. The nearer we are to the Lord, and the more he has of us, the greater our influence will be. That's fruit. That's spiritual fruit. And where the Lord sees fruit, He enhances its growth. Let's look at one last thought. We'll pray. Look at verse 12. There's a contrast between verse 12 and verse 24. Verse 12, the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your land, of your hand, and you shall lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. Look at verse 24. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it will come down on you until you are destroyed. Now, obviously, those are two different statements. He's talking about literal rain at this point, but the application is still there. In verse 12, he's saying, if you obey, if you listen, if you hearken to my voice, if you seek me, if you walk with me, I will make the rain come down and it will bless you and it will prosper you, and things will grow. But if you don't, verse 24, if you resist me, and you're stubborn, and you're recalcitrant, like you've been for 40 years, I'm going to make the heavens like bronze, and the rain's just going to be dust. Now, after 40 years of wilderness, no one had a greater understanding of the joy of rain than the Israelites. They're now standing in the Jordan Valley. They've been wandering in beige darkness and beige desert for 40 years. Now they're standing in the Jordan Valley, which if you go today, 
is a green ribbon of lush fertility. You can see it from miles where the water is. Now they're standing there and they see the palm trees and they see the water and they see the vegetation and they see the growth after 40 years of staring at rocks. And God says to them, blessing or cursing, it depends on how you're walking with me. If you're far from me and unfaithful to me, the heavens are going to be like bronze. It's going to rain, but the rain's going to be powder and dust, and there is going to be no joy, and it's going to choke your life. Now, I don't know if you saw the video of this dust storm that took place in Phoenix a couple weeks ago. Have you seen that? Let me show you. We've got a video. Let me just show you 20, 30 seconds of what this looked like. It was an amazing phenomenon. This dust just came in and engulfed the city of Phoenix. Just, just springing up from nowhere. It was sudden. The, the, the weatherman didn't even know it was coming. And it took only minutes. That was a time lapse. But it took only minutes for this huge dust cloud to engulf the city. And daytime turned into nighttime in a matter of moments. And cars didn't know where they were going. They crashed into each other. People couldn't breathe. And I thought to myself this week, that's verse 24. That's what happens when we don't walk with the Lord, when we're outside of the blessing of God, we're in that path of destruction, and we're overwhelmed by, by what chokes us and, and what steals and obscures our vision. Church this morning... Let's make sure that our lives and ministry don't lose their vitality. That our ministry doesn't falter because we stop calling on the Lord and we stop calling people to faith in Christ. Spiritual dryness is never supposed to be an ongoing state. The first time we see the sign of it, we need to turn from the sin and call on the name of the Lord. Because I don't know about you, but I want verse 12 to be true of my life and your life and this church's life. I want verse 12 to describe us, that as individual believers and as the body that makes up this church, that we have an abundant supply of God's favor and that produces more fruit. We should want what Isaiah 44, 3 says, when the Lord says, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground and I'll pour out my spirit on you and your descendants. How many of you this morning, and I don't necessarily need a response, but how many of you want to see God's hand of blessing on us? I mean, just where God's favor is there, where His Spirit is poured out and He's leading us. I don't know about you, but I want to experience that rain. I want to live in a way that absolutely pleases Him and causes Him to say, all right, I'm opening up now. Here comes the deluge. I'm going to pour it out on you. I'm going to bless you in unique ways. Well, let me tell you something that happened at the end of this week. God opened up the storehouse and poured out some rain on us. I received a note in the mail from my father, and he was simply facilitating something that the Lord wanted to do for our church. Let me read you part of what the note says. Dear Paul and members of Harbor Rock, the enclosed gift is from an anonymous giver. 
they wish to designate at least half of it for the purchase of future property for the church. I know you and people will rejoice and give praise to the Lord. And inside was a check for $20,000. Let's praise the Lord for the reign of his blessing. Now, of course, not all blessing looks like that. Far more important to me is the salvation of someone like the brother who's in our midst this morning who just in the last three weeks has given his heart to the Lord. We need to praise the Lord for that just as much. I, I hope and pray, and I had this, this text planned far before that check ever came in the mail, but I hope and pray that you and I will be encouraged by what God has done, by what God is doing, and what God is going to do in our church in the days ahead, the best response that we can have, listen now, I'm done, is to stay faithful. There will be adversity, there will be criticism, there will be spiritual opposition, and the best thing we can do is to seek His face. Now, I want to close this word this morning by doing just that. I want to encourage some of you to lead us in thanking Him and in calling on Him. And we're just going to kind of have a little mini prayer meeting here at the end. I'm going to ask Parker to play real quietly so we can hear each other. But let's just bow our heads and let's call on the Lord. Let's thank the Lord. Some of you now just, just lead us. This is not a time to show. This is just a time to praise the Lord. He's the only one that gets the honor at this point. Let's praise Him. Let's call on His name. Let's thank Him. Let's show gratitude to Him. And then I'll pray and we'll sing and praise Him and then we'll say good morning. But right now, some of you, let's just, let's honor Him. Lord, to say that You are good doesn't even begin to capture it. We praise you for what you have done in our lives. We praise you for your mercy, which is undeserved, which we did not seek, which we did not earn. We didn't even know how wonderful it could be until you showed us Christ. And Lord, that has changed everything. We praise you for salvation. We praise you for redemption. We praise you for your spirit. We praise you for your promises, for the security of heaven, for the fellowship of the body, for your ongoing work. Lord, we could just say for hours and hours and hours and hours what you've done. We exalt you today. We praise you for how you are blessing us and how you will bless us. We seek your leading, your direction, your hand. Lord, I thank you this morning for the brother in this room whose heart has been changed. What a joy to see a life transformed. Thank you for those that are more confident in you because you have been so faithful to them. 
their faith is growing. Lord, continue to increase their faith. Continue to increase my faith. Continue to increase the faith of this church. To not be distracted, not be discouraged. But just to keep our heart and mind and eyes focused solely on you. To keep seeking your face. And Lord, we will do that. Thank you for this gift, Father. Thank you for the blessing you've shown to us. Just as a matter of encouragement, just as a matter of momentum at this point, you know the plans you have for us. We want to know them too, but we will be patient till you reveal them. And Lord, when you do, we will follow. We praise you, Lord. It's just so good to praise you, Father. So good to praise you. We thank you this morning. We love you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who saved us. Amen.